John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Hear the word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've uh, got three points. Um, this, this is a passage all about glory. And um, we will look at first the scandalous weakness of God's glory, and then we'll look at the life-giving power of his glory, and then we'll look at this extraordinary invitation to actually share in his glory, to share in the glory of God. Okay, so at the opening of our passage, we learn that Jesus' reputation, it's grown so much that even the Greeks, that's just another way of saying Gentiles, even the Gentiles uh, are wanting to see him. But I wonder, like, what it is about Jesus that they're wanting to see. Uh, Undoubtedly, they've heard about Jesus' signs, like here's one who can turn water into wine. Uh, here's one who can walk on water. Here's one who can feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves. And then we looked at this last week. Here's one who can just speak to a dead man, and the dead man hears him and comes out of the grave. I mean, that all sounds pretty spectacular and marvelous and glorious. I mean, I'd like to see that kind of thing, and I bet you would too. And so these Gentiles send a message to Jesus through Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And here's how Jesus responds. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, Jesus says basically, okay, it's time. They want to see me and they will see me and they won't just see me, they'll see my glory, Jesus says. And I imagine that when Jesus says that, his disciples' hearts skip a beat because Jesus is saying that, like, the moment that they have been waiting for has finally arrived. You know, they've, these are guys who have spent years following Jesus around, um, confident that they were on a path with Jesus leading to glory, and now Jesus confirms it. He's saying the time has arrived. It's time for me to disclose who I really am. It's time for glory. And then he starts talking about his death. 
he says it's only when a grain of mustard seed falls to the ground that uh, it bears much fruit. And we can imagine maybe an awkward silence among the disciples. You see, Jesus just stops their visions of grandeur cold. The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. But remember, we talked about this, I guess, weeks and weeks ago at this point. When Jesus talks about the hour in John's gospel, it's always a reference to his death. So yes, Jesus will now be glorified, but it's not by writing the praise of men into fame. It is through suffering, and it is through death. It's not by being lifted up on a throne for all to see, but it's by being lifted up on a cross where all will mock him and ridicule him. I mean, family, can you begin to see the scandalous weakness of God's glory? Just as a seed can only bring a harvest by can only um, bring a harvest by falling into the ground and dying, <coughs> Jesus will bring life to the world only by being cut down and buried and dead. And, and what the Gospel of John shows us more clearly than any of the other synoptic Gospels is that um, this actually is the glory of God. John sees the glory of God as a crucified man. It's scandalous weakness. Uh, it's what the Apostle Paul calls a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Like no one, no one would ever imagine, would ever even think to imagine that the crucifixion of a man would be like the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God. Because when we think glory, we do think brightness and splendor. And when John thinks glory, he thinks the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It really messes with our categories, doesn't it? I mean, we live in a world in which if you want glory, what do you do? You move up and to the right. Uh, you want power, you grab for power. You want influence, you, you network with influential and powerful people. Um, that's how you get glory in this world. And, you know, we learn this from a really young age. I mean, sometimes I catch myself teaching my sons that um, if they want their lives to be significant and to matter and to be great, well, then they need to do well and they need to, like, actually do their homework so that they can get good grades, so that one day they can get into a good college, so that one day they can get a good job that is for what, like, Money, I guess, success, like making it in the world. And, and this is how we conceive of the way of glory. Every culture, every religion, every philosophy of wisdom in the world says the powerful win, those who perform get the reward, the spoils go to the strong, and the teaching of Jesus comes just like a rock shattering this glass window. And it contradicts everything we assume about glory. And it takes our human value system and just flips it on its head. The way up is the way down. The way to get real power is to actually give your power away. The way to happiness is, is actually not to seek your own happiness, but to maybe seek the happiness of other people. The way to redemption is through suffering. 
The way to power is through weakness. The way to real life, real life, is through death. And so the Gentiles come and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. See, they're not ready for this. And no one is ready for this. What about you? Are you ready for this? I mean, this is an invitation for us over the next couple of weeks as we head toward Easter to have our eyes and our ears open and attuned to the scandalous weakness of God's glory. It's not what we expect. It might not even be what we want. Um, his greatness is not that he puts himself first, but that he stoops so low to serve. His power comes through weakness. And, and so family, if you want to behold the glory of God, behold one whose self-giving love leads him to the cross. Remember that at the center of the center of everything is this humble, self-giving love of, love of God. Um, it's, it's been a while since we looked at this passage, but you remember this from Revelation. Uh, this is a vision that, that um, very possibly the very same author gets uh, of what's going on in the throne room of heaven. And you remember um, he's told by an elder, weep no more, and he's asked to behold the lion. Behold the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's, here's one who can conquer. Here, here's the only one who can open up the scroll and its seven seals and it's all of this crazy imagery. And he looks to behold the lion and do you remember what he sees? He, he sees the, the lamb like standing there slain with its throat slit, with its wool matted in blood. And, and that is at the center of the center of everything. There, that paradox that the lion is the lamb. That, that the glory is the cross. See the scandalous weakness of it. And also see the life-giving power of it. Um, you know, one of my favorite features of the Christ Pres property. Can we talk about favorite features of the property here? <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot to be really excited about, but this is real. <laughs> <laughs> the center pocket is so amazing. Um, if, you, if you go to the back field, there's this line of four gigantic oak trees that line the property, and I just think, you know, every, every time I pull in, I just think, oh, what a gift that we have these giant oak trees lining the property. And you, you think about how big and life-giving they are. Um, Hayden put me onto a book, actually, that is about how oak, tree, oak trees are, um, are better than any other tree in terms of their life-giving potential and the, the biodiversity that they are hospitable to. So bugs and birds and all of that wonderful stuff. Um, where did those trees come from? From a little tiny seed inside a little tiny acorn. And that's it. And then you get, you get splendor like that. You get that kind of life-giving power coming from something so small. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so the glory of Jesus is not only scandalous in its, we in its weakness, it's also... Um, it, it has this incredible life-giving power. 
Um, it's death that will lead to life, not just for Jesus, but for the whole world. I mean, this is, this is death that bears uh, extraordinary fruit. So let's look at what our passage tells us about some of this uh, fruit, this life-giving power of Jesus' glory. Look again at verses 31 and 32. I'll read it again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So, I mean, we just get three realities back to back in those two verses uh, that are brought about by the life-giving glory um, of Jesus' death. And family, this is good fruit. This is good life-giving fruit. Let's just look at these three real quick. First, the judgment of the world. Jesus says, this is the fruit that my death is bringing about, the judgment of the world, um, which might not sound like good fruit at first. I mean, most of us don't like talking about judgment or dwelling on judgment. It looks like Jesus might not like it either. Notice the clue John gives us about his emotional life in verse 27. Jesus tells us that his soul is troubled. It's like, it's like he's experiencing intense emotional distress, and, and we see it looks like that he's at least uh, considering the option of trying to avoid what's before him, which should sh surprise us maybe. Because up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has not been like an anxious, troubled person. This is a man who can walk on water in, in the midst of storms and he heal heals the sick and he can raise the dead. And I mean, he doesn't strike us as the kind of person who gets stressed out easily. But here he is, and he's just trembling. It's like he's staggering. This is a sight of Jesus maybe that we haven't seen yet in John's gospel because he looks so vulnerable and weak and fearful. And what's going on? Like, what, what can account for that? And you might think that it's just finally dawning on Jesus that he's going to die. You might think it's the thought of his own death that he finds so troubling and overwhelming. But I don't think that can be right because Jesus has been... <laughs> He's been thinking about his death ever since that wedding. You remember that? When his mom comes to him and says, we've run out of wine, and he says, it's not my time yet. The hour has not yet come. He's been thinking about his death ever since then, and he has actually been purposefully moving toward his death. Well, then maybe it's not just death, but it's the particular death. Maybe it's crucifixion that has Jesus so troubled um, because... After all, crucifixion was like just a horrible, brutal, agonizing way to die. But I don't think that can be right either because um, there are just so many others who have faced even more horrific deaths with so much more poise and fortitude. I mean, Socrates, for example, he greeted death with, with peace, like it was an old friend. Hundreds of Christian martyrs have faced death with more self-possession than Jesus seems to have here. I mean, we have accounts of, of saints who were martyred who, who basically said, bring it on, you know, do your worst. And, and they went to their deaths, horrific deaths, like singing with smiles on their face, filled with joy. And so what's going on here? Like, why is Jesus so troubled? Like, he knows he's facing something more than death like in some way worse than death. He's facing judgment. 
And Jesus knows it. He knows that for him, the cross will be more than just a painful, physically agonizing death. It will, it will mean the judgment of the world. And, and so right here, like a couple of days before his arrest, he's, he's beginning to like taste that like metal in his mouth. It's like he's at the edge of this abyss that he knows he's going to fall into. And he's just looking down into the... Um, just the inscrutable darkness of it. And still he keeps moving forward. I mean, family, that Jesus moves on after this point is proof of his great love for you. I mean, this is his self-giving love for you and me. Here is the supreme manifestation of the love of God for us that the judge would move forward to be judged in our place, taking onto himself and into himself all of our sin and shame and bearing it and bearing it away. Um, Jesus says, for this reason I have come, um, to die for the world, to um, bring and bear in myself the judgment of the world. And, and so the scandalous weakness of the cross turns out to be the life-giving power of God's judgment. Do you see the goodness of this for you? That this is good fruit for you? I mean, I think there's a deep mystery here that I certainly haven't um, plumbed the depths of or figured out, but we can be sure, like, I know some of you, because you share this with me, like, some of you worry about your sin, and you worry about the judgment of your sin. And what John tells us is that in the death of Jesus, we have the judgment of the world. And there are other parts of the New Testament that clearly say there's going to be some kind of future judgment too. But I think that what the New Testament teaches us here is that like, the two judgments can't be torn apart. They can't be separated. In other words, we, ha we put our trust in the fact that the one who will come and judge us at the end is none other than this one, Jesus Christ, who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for us and in our place out of like deep unswerving love for people like you and me. That's good news. It's not like we see one judge here and then we meet some other judge at the end who doesn't want to lay down his life for us. Jesus is the judge and he lays down his life for us. That's good fruit. There's more. Um, because what John tells us uh, what Jesus tells us is that his death on the cross will also bring the defeat of evil. Brings the defeat of evil. He says, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. You know, the Jews of Jesus' day, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and to cast out the ruler of the world, who was for them Caesar and Rome and the Roman occupiers of their land. And so they, they figured these were their biggest, baddest enemies, they were waiting for Messiah to come, raise up an army, and kick them out, cast them out. Um, and Jesus says, oh no. He says, you have a much bigger enemy than Caesar and Rome. And I haven't come to defeat Rome and to cast them out of the land. I mean, Jesus is saying, I've come to defeat evil itself and to cast it out of the world. It's interesting, this is the one and only exorcism recorded in the Gospel of John. John doesn't tell us about any encounters between Jesus and 
demon-possessed people, uh, people who are afflicted by demon possession, he retells an encounter between the Son of God and the entire world that is afflicted by demon possession. And on the cross in his glorious death, Jesus casts out the evil one, the ruler of this world. I mean, the scandalous weakness of the cross turns out to be the means, the very means by which evil is defeated. Um, I just figure Satan didn't see that coming. That, that the Son of God would let the ruler of this world do, do its worst against him, even to the point of killing him. And somehow by entering into the domain of death, Jesus overcomes it and is victorious over it. Um, and so family, he's not just judging the world in his death, he's freeing the world. I mean, you and I have really been delivered from the grip of our greatest foe. I figure he still messes with us quite a bit. Um, I figure there's still some kind of decisive or um, like final victory that we wait for. But in the death of Jesus, Satan has been cast out in a real way. And there's more good fruit. Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Um, so we see it even at the very beginning of the passage. Like the Gentiles are already seeking Jesus out, right? They come to Jesus. They say they want to see Jesus, but they don't really know what they're asking to see. I mean, Jesus has shown the world his glory, and, his, um, and it's the glory of his suffering love. Uh, he shows the world that in his death, and that, um, that love, love so great that it would lay its life down for the life of the world, that has a kind of magnetic, life-giving pull. I mean, why do you think you're here this morning? Why do you think you're here this morning? Um, because somewhere along the way, something about the scandalous weakness of the glory of God grabbed hold of you in a powerful way. You, you found it to be uh, compelling. You found, it, you found the scandalous weakness to actually be life-giving for you. Um, by being lifted up in glory and by drawing, uh, drawing people like you and me to himself, this is how Jesus is saving the world. And, and of course, he doesn't just want to draw us. This isn't a tiny gospel for 50 or so people. This is a big gospel. This is big good news for the whole world. And, and so this leads to our final point. There is an invitation to share in God's glory. We've seen the scandalous weakness of his glory. We've looked at the life-giving power of his glory. Now let's look at the, scan, um, the invitation to share in it. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. And that word remains is a really important word in the Gospel of John. We've talked about this before, but it, it's that word that means abide. Um, you know, 
to, to live with, to live with. And so it's like Jesus is saying, I don't want to abide alone. Like he wants us, he wants a community of people to abide with him. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to share in his life of love. And maybe in the end, um, that's what the Gentiles are asking when they ask to seek Jesus. I mean, maybe they don't quite realize it. They might not put it quite like that, but like maybe as Augustine says, their hearts are restless and they're looking for one in whom they can rest their weary hearts. Like they don't just want to see something spectacular. They want to know who God really is and what God's really like. They want to know the real splendor of his character in a lasting, ongoing way. And so Jesus invites them and he invites us um, to see it and then to do it, to abide with him, to rest our hearts in him. So listen again to verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, family, he's inviting us to embrace his way, to embrace the scandal of finding life by losing it, um, to serve him, at first at least, simply by, by being with him, by following him, by joining where he is. He's inviting us to this life of abiding and, and he's inviting us to the life of self-giving love that always flows from a life of abiding. And to the extent that we respond to his invitation, to that call, to the extent that we follow him and join him where he is, our lives will be shaped by the cross. In other words, um, we might be led places we don't want to go. Um, and so there's an invitation here, I think, for some serious and sober self-examination. It's still Lent, after all. You know, it, it's depressing to look at studies. Go on a little tangent. Uh, sermon's already too long. Might as well make it really long. Uh, they come out with these studies that, like, basically gauge how Christian Americans view things compared to with how just Americans view things. And it's so discouraging that there's almost never any significant difference. I mean, about everything from our attitudes about race and injustice, um, attitudes about, um, oh, I don't know, just anything, like how we use our money, how we entertain ourselves, what we value as being important, divorce rates, like our ability to actually stick with a marriage until death do us part. I mean, we, we just kind of map on to the values of our culture and context. And that's concerning. <laughs> um, that makes me wonder about whether we hear the invitation of this passage whether we're willing to actually um, respond to it in a positive way. And so self-examination, sober self-examination, um, we might ask ourselves, like, why is it that when we think of success, 
and 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 I and I mean this for me too because I'm like, man, I'm in this too. Like, why when we think of success do we think of um, bigger and more? Um, maybe bigger home, better car, bigger church, better church, better carpet at least. <laughs> it's coming. Um, so, you know, secure retirement. It's like, why, why is that greatness for us? Why not, why not, when we think of greatness, we just think, oh, a life of sacrificial love for the sake of others. That's greatness. Or when we think of beauty, why do, why do celebrities come to mind more than um, the poor or people who are lonely and lost and on the margins of our society, the quartet of the vulnerable that God longs to protect and shield and that we know God treasures if we take the Bible seriously. When we think of, um, when we think of greatness, like why are we thinking of like bigger platforms and applause and acclaim instead of like just the quiet, humble daily acts of self-giving love for the sake of others? I mean, there's a place in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says to that early Christian community, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. I'm convinced that one of the ways the risen, glorified Jesus is still drawing people to himself is through a community of people, the church, that really bases its life together on the gospel. And I worry that we lose all of our magnetic, powerful pull, which is not ours, but God's through us, when we look just like American culture. Like when people who are far from Jesus look at us and they just see like Americans who don't want to sacrifice, who don't want to lay down their lives, who aren't willing to go low, who aren't willing to even really be with the lost and lonely and the least and the last. Like I just wonder um, how will they know the, the scandalous weakness of the glory of God? If, if we aren't embracing it ourselves? Like, how will the world know it if we aren't embracing it ourselves? Um, for us, for people who follow Jesus, glory will only come to us in the same way that it came to Jesus. Um, it's this downward path of humble, suffering love. I don't know if I believe that most days, and so I definitely don't know if you believe it. But the invitation for us is to believe it, to trust it, and to start to make adjustments in our lives that, like, map onto that reality. It's a very different reality. It's a very different reality. You all remember Sarah Smith of Golders Green? Some of you do. Some of you don't. If you don't remember her, you'll see how appropriate it is that you don't remember her in just a minute. Um, 
She's a character from The Great Divorce, which is a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. I've told you to read this so many times. <laughs> don't listen to me. You don't listen to me. Oh, good. Hey, that's good. Um, so, so the book, real quick, it's a busload of people going from the outskirts of hell, and they're, they're going on like a field trip to heaven. And uh, one by one, they encounter like these different spirits um, coming down from heaven. And uh, at one point, the narrator, the, the, uh, he sees like just this, this big, beautiful spirit of a woman who is just, um, like Rhonda said, brilliant and, and bright and shining and glorious, uh, glorious beyond imagination. And she is attended on all sides by boys and girls and men and women, and they're playing music and they're dancing around her and they're singing praises and her love uh, is like flowing out of her into them and and their love is flowing back into her. There's just like this mutual sharing of love and delight. And it says, it says that her beauty was unbearable, unbearable beauty. And so, so the main character, the narrator, he turns to his guide because he has a guide who's kind of explaining everything that unfolds. And he, he turns to his guide thinking that this must be someone who he knew before death, like back on earth, who must be like super famous. And the guide replies, oh, no, no. It's someone who you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived in a little tiny town north of London called Golders Green. And so, so um, the narrator, he's wrestling with this, and he says, but she seems to be like someone of such great importance. And the guide says, yes, <laughs> like she is one of the great ones, but haven't you heard? Fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. Everybody basked in her love. And she had become just one of the greatest hearts of heaven. Why? <laughs> because the cross is the glory. Because fame in God's realm and fame in our realm are two very different things. And Sarah Smith understood this, and she had a vision of her life in which she very quietly just eschewed the glory of the world and said, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to prioritize being with him wherever that is. And where is Jesus? Well, he's always going small. He's always going the way of humble, suffering love. He's always going out toward the last and the least and the lost. And Sarah Smith said, that's where I will be. I'll be with him. And so there's an invitation to share in God's glory and to embrace God's way and to go this low road of humble, suffering love. And um, whew, we can't do that on our own, can we? So let me... I'll pray for us, 